Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the summer of 1902, 300 feet above the bustling streets of Manhattan, Evelyn Nesbitt reclined on a lavish sofa in her lover's apartment. The 17-year-old took a sip of champagne and tried to enjoy herself. She told herself she should be happy. Things were better than they'd ever been. Stanford White, a wealthy New England architect, had changed her life. Evelyn stood up and spun in circles around Stanford's empty office. She briefly tried to rehearse for her next Broadway performance, but soon gave up. She felt restless and couldn't stop herself from thinking about what people might think about her and 47-year-old Stanford. The age difference scandalized her mother, but Evelyn didn't care. As long as she married, everything would be all right again. It wouldn't matter what he'd done to her in the past. She could live the rest of her life eating caviar and shopping at Tiffany's. To take her mind off her worries, Evelyn browsed through a stack of papers on Stanford's desk. On top was a tiny black book. In the many months she'd spent coming to the apartment, she'd never seen it before. Curiosity got the best of her, and Evelyn started flipping through the pages. Inside was a list, written in Stanford's messy hand, of women's names and birthdays. She recognized a few as her fellow cast members, but the list went on for pages. Who were these women? And what did Stanford need a record of their birthdays for? Evelyn felt a knot forming in her stomach as she continued leafing through the book. Finally, she reached the final page of names. There, near the bottom, she found her own. Evelyn Nesbitt, born December 25th. Her hand moved towards her diamond necklace. Stanford had sent it to her on her birthday. She'd been so touched by his thoughtfulness. How many of these other girls had diamonds from him as well? And had they all suffered the same horrors at his hand? Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Today, we'll discuss model and actress Evelyn Nesbitt's relationship to two powerful New England men, architect Stanford White and railroad heir Harry Thaw. We'll see how the men competed for Evelyn's affection culminating in a deadly love triangle. Next week, we'll discuss the confrontation that left one person dead, one in an asylum, and one scrambling to piece their ruined life together again.
We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Evelyn Nesbitt was born on Christmas Day of 1884 in Tarentum, Pennsylvania, a small town near Pittsburgh. Her parents saw Evelyn as the ultimate gift. In 1893, when she was just nine years old, Evelyn's father died suddenly. Evelyn, her mother Florence, and her younger brother Howard were left heartbroken and penniless. For years, the family survived on meager meals and secondhand clothing. Florence desperately wanted better for her children. In 1899, the family moved to Philadelphia. Florence found work as a saleswoman at a large department store called Wanamaker's. It wasn't long before 15-year-old Evelyn also started working at the store. Because she was so young, she wasn't trusted behind the register and instead hung and folded clothing. One day during this period, John Storm, a preeminent local artist, noticed Evelyn at the boarding house where she lived with her family. He found the teenager strikingly beautiful. Her face, framed by long, dark hair, had the kind of divine symmetry only seen in illustrations. She was exactly the model he needed for his latest project. He approached Florence, but she was hesitant. Modeling carried a social stigma, and she didn't want her daughter to be seen as unchaste or dishonorable. But when John Storm offered to pay, Florence couldn't say no. Evelyn was delighted. She leapt at the chance to earn some money for the family, and Storm treated her well. With his help networking, Evelyn was soon modeling for numerous artists in Philadelphia. Most notably, she posed for a stained glass mural at a large church, her features immortalized as those of an angel. Her modeling career quickly became the Nesbitt family's primary source of income, which put a huge amount of pressure on the teenage girl's shoulders. Before I continue with Evelyn's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2013 study published by the Universal Journal of Psychology, researchers Eleni Elistopoulou and Konstantina Zumerka 
detail the consequences of parentification or the reversion of roles between parents and children. Instrumental parentification, as opposed to emotional parentification, occurs when a child is expected to take responsibility for their family's practical needs, just as Evelyn did. Research has found that parentified children are more likely to struggle with interpersonal difficulties and to use escapism as a way to cope. This could be a reason why Evelyn gravitated towards modeling. Posing for sketches and photographs earned money, but it was also a way to inhabit a character different from herself. It allowed her to flee the pressures of her life and play the role of a more fabulous young woman. Evelyn's parentification made her feel solely responsible for her family's well-being. It was a burden, but Evelyn felt obligated to do her part for her mother. She tried to focus on the enjoyable parts of the job, reveling in the attention her modeling garnered. In no time, Florence was acting as her daughter's manager. Things in Philadelphia were going well, but she dreamed of the success Evelyn could achieve in a bigger city. In 1900, Florence, Evelyn, and Howard moved to a boarding house on West 22nd Street in New York City. Almost immediately, Evelyn, now 16, was hired to pose for painters and illustrators. She charged $5, around $150 today for each sitting. She easily made enough money to cover the family's expenses, but she wanted more. Although it wasn't a particularly respectable way to make money, Evelyn could charge twice as much for sittings with New York's fashion photographers. At the time, many considered the work to be immoral and fashion models were often decried as promiscuous, but the money was worth the slander for Evelyn. Her gambit paid off. Just one year after moving to New York, her picture was ubiquitous in both magazines and advertisements. It didn't take long for casting agents to notice the beautiful model. In 1901, talent agent Ted Marks contacted Florence and vowed to get Evelyn a role in the hit musical Floridora, then playing at Broadway's Casino Theater. Florence could hardly hold back her tears. This was sure to be her daughter's big break. John Fisher, the manager of the Casino Theater, hired Evelyn as a chorus girl in Floridora. She was paid $15 a week, more money than the family had brought in since Evelyn's father passed away eight years earlier. Performing on Broadway wasn't just good for Evelyn's wallet. Being a member of the Floridora cast catapulted her into New York's upper class, and she soon had numerous wealthy men pining over her. At first, Evelyn ignored invitations from potential suitors. She wasn't interested in relationships or marriage, strictly focused on building a better life for her mother and brother. But everything changed when Edna Goodrich, a fellow Floridora performer, introduced Evelyn to a man named Stanford White. Evelyn sat in the carriage with her arms folded across her chest. If Edna hadn't insisted, she never would have dressed up to meet some rich man. She was still sulking as Edna paid for the carriage and walked Evelyn to the front door of a towering four-story brownstone. Evelyn had to crane her neck to see the windows on the top floor. She couldn't believe only a single person actually lived there. The place was large enough to be a department store. Now, Evelyn started to understand why Edna had forced her to come along. 
Stanford White wasn't someone to be ignored. He was a famous architect who designed buildings all around New York, from the Washington Square Arch to Madison Square Garden. But even so, Evelyn had made up her mind. She wouldn't allow herself to be impressed. Wealthy men only wanted one thing, and Evelyn wasn't playing their games. She resisted the urge to straighten her dress as Edna knocked on the door. When 47-year-old Stanford White, a tall, imposing man with a thick mustache, answered the door, she shrank back reflexively. Luckily, Stanford didn't seem to notice. Edna rose up to her tiptoes, kissed Stanford on the cheek, and pulled Evelyn inside. In a matter of moments, Evelyn's apprehension and her stoicism disappeared. Stanford was fascinating. It seemed he'd traveled everywhere in the world, and he had stories and souvenirs to prove it. He served food on fine china plates. They ate beneath the light of an ornate chandelier. Stanford even let Evelyn have a glass of champagne from a delicate glass flute. Soon, Evelyn was embarrassed by all the assumptions she'd made before the meeting. Stanford was a perfect gentleman. When it was time for the actresses to head to the casino theater for their performance that night, she was sad to leave. But it didn't take long for her to hear from Stanford again. Just a few days later, he sent a letter inviting Evelyn to another luncheon. She was happy to oblige. Along with another actress and her guests, they had a lovely meal for four. Less than a week after that, Stanford reached out to Evelyn's mother. He told her how fond he was of her daughter. He was concerned for her well-being. He said like a father would be for a child. The boarding house was no place for a family as respectable as the Nesbitts. Stanford offered to pay for Evelyn's 12-year-old brother Howard to attend a military school near Philadelphia. Back in New York, he would finance Florence and Evelyn's extended stay in a suite at the Audubon Hotel on Broadway. Florence couldn't believe her luck. She was flattered that a man as important and well-to-do as Stanford White should take an interest in her daughter. Howard would excel at military school, and she and Evelyn would be more than comfortable at the Audubon. In the summer of 1901, a year after moving to New York City, everything seemed to be coming together for the Nesbitt family. But Stanford White wasn't all posh lunches and generosity. Beneath his kind exterior lurked a dark, ulterior motive. When we return, Evelyn learns the truth about Stanford White. Hi, listeners. Are you ready to sink your teeth into a sizzling new Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class but probably should have. Follow the fantastic new series Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1901, 16-year-old Evelyn Nesbitt was living the life of her dreams. She was a sought-after model with a burgeoning career on Broadway. In the last few years, she'd made enough money to pull her family out of poverty. To add to her list of successes, she'd recently found an admirer in 47-year-old Stanford White, a fabulously wealthy architect who cared for her like a father. After Stanford paid her younger brother's tuition and bought Evelyn and her mother a room at the Ritzy Audubon Hotel, Evelyn was entirely in his debt. She never refused his frequent invitations to lunch and often saw him at the large parties he hosted after her performances. So she wasn't surprised when Stanford invited her out one evening to attend a party he was hosting. Evelyn's stomach fluttered with nerves. There were sure to be dozens of important people at the party. Perhaps there would be artists or casting directors. Stanford was always looking out for her after all. He probably knew this would be a perfect opportunity for Evelyn to network with New York's elite. That evening, Evelyn put on her nicest dress and hailed a taxi to 24th Street. Evelyn darted up the front steps to Stanford's house around 10 p.m. She assumed that by that time, the party was sure to be in full swing. But when Stanford opened the door, he looked gloomy. He told Evelyn all the other guests had stood him up. He was waiting for over an hour, and she was the only one who showed. Evelyn was crushed. Her mother was away on a short trip to Philadelphia, and she couldn't bear the thought of spending the evening alone at the hotel. She sighed and asked if she should go home. A smile crept across Stanford's face. He reached out to Evelyn and assured her that they'd be able to entertain themselves. Beneath the crystal chandelier in the dining room, they ate dinner together. Evelyn gossiped about her fellow Floridora cast members and spoke about how much she missed her brother now that he was away at school. Stanford nodded along absentmindedly. When it seemed like Evelyn had tired of conversation, he offered her a full tour of his sprawling home. The journey through its maze-like halls was dizzying for the 16-year-old. She'd visited plenty of times, but had never seen most of the house. After what seemed like an hour, Stanford reached the end of the line. He led her to the back of the property, to a dark room with nothing inside but a small bar and a four-poster bed. Evelyn told Stanford that he had a lovely home. When he gestured to the bed, she sat awkwardly on the edge, not wanting to be rude. Stanford poured her a glass of champagne, but after she had a taste, she tried to hand it back. It was too bitter. Stanford insisted that she finish it anyway. The champagne was foreign, he said, and very expensive. Evelyn emptied the glass to appease him, he watched her from the bar with a strange intensity. 
She tried to make conversation, but Stanford wouldn't say a word. He just stared. A few minutes passed and Evelyn started feeling woozy. Her ears rang, her vision blurred. Then everything went black. When Evelyn awoke, the first thing she noticed was how chilly she was. She looked down and realized she was naked. Suddenly frightened and full of adrenaline, she took in everything around her in one swift glance. The dark wood of the four-poster bed, the ivory-colored sheets, and the middle-aged man sleeping beside her. Evelyn screamed. She meant to jump out of the bed, but stopped when she saw the stains on the sheets, bright red splotches right between her legs. She screamed even louder, fumbling for her clothes, trying to hold back tears. Stanford awoke suddenly, rolled over and told her to be quiet. There was no use in being hysterical. Evelyn struggled to button up her dress, still choking back sobs. As she ran away from Stanford White, the man she'd trusted, the man who had been so good to her family, he rolled back over in bed. Then he yelled, warning her to keep the assault a secret. Evelyn returned to her suite at the Audubon Hotel and cried until she ran out of tears. The next morning, she took a shower and scrubbed her body until her skin felt raw. She wanted to get every trace of Stanford White off of her. Later that day, Stanford showed up at her suite. She wanted to turn him away, but she knew she couldn't. He was the one paying for the room after all. She let him inside without meeting his gaze. Stanford spoke quietly, almost bashfully. He assured Evelyn that what had happened between them was perfectly normal. All his friends and acquaintances did the same thing. He knew for a fact that some of the actresses in Floridora had been in Evelyn's position. Evelyn was confused. If people did such things so often, how come she'd never heard anybody talk about it? According to Stanford, to keep these things a secret was simply a matter of propriety. Evelyn believed him. In many ways, she was still a naive 16-year-old and she desperately wanted to forget her trauma. She was also a young woman financially dependent on the favor of an older established man. She pushed the memory of the rape away and convinced herself that although Stanford took advantage of her, he still had her best interests at heart. In the months that followed, Evelyn and Stanford's relationship continued practically uninterrupted. He still invited her for lunch and sent flowers to her room at the Audubon. When Floridora's Broadway run had ended, Evelyn relied more fully on Stanford for money. It's unclear whether they ever had sex again, but either way, their relationship was strange. To Evelyn, Stanford was a friend, a father, and a romantic interest. The fact that Evelyn had lost her father at such a young age may have made her more psychologically vulnerable to Stanford's abuse, both sexual and economic. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, economic abuse involves maintaining control over financial resources, withholding access to money, or attempting to prevent a victim from working in an effort to create financial dependence as a means of control. Although Evelyn was tortured by memories of what Stanford did to her, 
she was dependent on him for her family's economic security. She was only 16, but had already been responsible for her mother's well-being for almost two years, and was willing to do anything for the sake of her brother. Stanford likely recognized and strengthened his hold on Evelyn through money. As months passed and the assault became a fuzzy memory, Evelyn may have even begun to imagine Stanford as a husband. While Stanford was already married, he claimed to be estranged from his wife. If Evelyn could somehow take her place, it would guarantee her a life of luxury and legitimize their relationship. Maybe then she would be able to forget what he'd done. Evelyn's fantasies were also spurred by the belief that she alone was the apple of his eye. She thought she was his only romantic prospect. After all, he'd even sent her a diamond necklace from Tiffany's for her 17th birthday. It wasn't until one afternoon in early 1902 that she found the famous architect's little black book filled with names and birthdays. She wasn't special at all. Stanford White had so many lovers that he needed a record to keep up with them. She was just one more name on his list. That day, Evelyn dropped the book back on Stanford's desk. She didn't care if he noticed it had been moved. She was too shocked to cry. What an idiot she'd been to think a man like Stanford White would ever want her a poor girl from Pennsylvania as his wife. How ridiculous to dream of a diamond ring because he'd given her a necklace. All the adoration she'd once felt suddenly turned back to revulsion. She hated him. He thought he was smooth, but his hairline was receding and his massive mustache didn't do anything but accentuate his weak jaw. She knew then that what he'd done to her wasn't normal. He was a rapist. He was a pedophile. She never wanted to see him again. But she also needed him. Floridora's run at the casino theater was over, and after two short-lived, unsuccessful plays, she hadn't been able to find work in theater. She could sit for portraits, but that didn't bring in enough money to support her, her mother, and keep Howard in military school. Stanford had her trapped. Evelyn sat down and carefully considered her options. She'd saved her family before and she could do it again. If Stanford wanted to see other women, that was just fine. She'd see other men. By mid-1902, Evelyn Nesbitt's name and face were known by practically everyone in New York and she received letters from countless potential suitors. Motivated by revenge, 17-year-old Evelyn started dating 20-year-old Jack Barrymore, who came from a family of actors. His sister was already performing on Broadway, but he had no interest in the theater. He'd previously attended drawing classes, but flunked his exams. While dating Evelyn, he lived on meager earnings from his work as a freelance illustrator. It was nothing near the luxury Stanford provided. As soon as word of her relationship with Jack got around town, Stanford sent a letter begging her to stay away from the Barrymore boy. He insisted the young artist had no prospects. The scorn only fueled Evelyn's anger. She wanted Stanford to beg to be the only man in her life. 
She continued to see Jack, and eventually rumors of their possible engagement spread around New York City. Stanford was horrified. But instead of committing to Evelyn like she had hoped, he went behind her back to her mother. He told Florence the situation was severe. Jack Barrymore had no savings and no status. The only thing he did have was a reputation for drinking. They had to find a way to end the engagement. Together, Stanford and Florence decided the best strategy would be to send Evelyn to an all-girls school in a small town in New Jersey. She couldn't make a living as a model forever, and if she wanted to have any prospects for future employment, she needed to get a proper education. Stanford would, he assured Florence, cover all the cost of Evelyn's education. Evelyn was apprehensive about going to school. She hated the idea of leaving New York, but she agreed that if she ever intended to have a viable career, she had a lot to learn. Besides, if Stanford couldn't love her, she wanted to stay as far from him as possible. On Stanford's dime, and only partially of her own volition, Evelyn moved and started classes in November of 1902. Her schooling lasted just three months. In late January of 1903, the 18-year-old collapsed on the campus grounds, clutching her stomach and groaning in agony. A doctor diagnosed her with acute appendicitis. Evelyn needed immediate surgery. The school's administration phoned her mother, who in turn called Stanford. He arranged for his personal physician to attend to her, then had her driven back to New York to recover. Stanford also financed Evelyn's stay in a private sanatorium. Visitors were frequent, old Florador castmates, friends from school, and numerous young men all offered their condolences. But Jack Barrymore was nowhere to be found. He had apparently found a new girlfriend soon after Evelyn left for school. One suitor, however, would hardly leave Evelyn's bedside. 31-year-old Harry Thaw kept her room decorated with flowers. She only knew him vaguely. He'd shown his admiration when they first met a year earlier, but she never paid him much attention. Now she saw him with fresh eyes. Harry Thaw was younger and more attractive, if only slightly, than Stanford White, and he just so happened to be the son of a railroad tycoon with a multi-million dollar fortune. While Harry Thaw's money is what initially drew Evelyn's attention, he also turned out to be far kinder than Stanford White. He seemed not only willing, but eager to attend to Evelyn's every need during and after her recovery. He didn't have a job, he didn't have to with his father's money, so he visited her frequently. Although she couldn't leave her hospital room, he kept her entertained with stories of his many adventures in England and France. In February 1903, when Evelyn was healthy enough to leave the sanatorium, Harry invited her on his next trip to Europe. She readily accepted, on one condition. Her mother would have to come along to serve as their chaperone. Anything else would be improper. Florence wasn't keen on leaving America. She had a love interest of her own, an old friend in Philadelphia who she meant to marry soon. If she left for Europe, it would only defer their union. But Evelyn insisted. They'd never been to Europe. It was a magnificent opportunity, 
especially considering Harry would pay their way. Still, Florence worried her daughter was being too trusting. She mentioned the possibility of a trip abroad to Stanford, who regularly checked in on Evelyn's recovery. He was shocked that Florence had never heard of Harry Thaw. He was, after all, an affluent socialite. Indeed, Stanford went on, Harry had quite a reputation. He was a known alcoholic who may or may not have dabbled in cocaine and heroin. It wasn't uncommon to find him roughed up from a bar fight. His money was squandered on playing dice and hiring sex workers. Harry's reputation upset Florence. She confronted Evelyn with the information, but when Evelyn spoke to Harry, he said Stanford's statements were nothing more than rumors. He conceded that he did have a bit of a hot temper, but he was ultimately a good man. Content with Harry's defense, Evelyn packed for their trip to Europe. Florence wasn't happy about it, but she couldn't let her unmarried daughter travel alone with a man. In May, Florence and Evelyn boarded a ship bound for Paris to meet Harry. Evelyn was over the moon, but Florence couldn't shake a feeling of dread. Up next, Harry woos Evelyn, but can't accept her past. Now back to the story. After recovering from an emergency appendectomy in February of 1903, 18-year-old Evelyn Nesbitt met 31-year-old millionaire Harry Thaw. That spring, Evelyn and her mother Florence agreed to accompany Harry on a trip to Europe. As soon as their ship docked in Paris, Evelyn felt like she'd arrived in a fairy tale. France was divine and Harry only made the trip better. Every morning began with a cafe breakfast and coffee. Then Harry walked Evelyn along the fashionable streets where he bought her anything she liked. Her favorite place by far was the Louvre. Nothing in New York or Philadelphia could compare to the decadent halls and the many masterpieces. It was like something out of a storybook. After a few weeks with Harry, Evelyn couldn't understand why anyone would ever spread such awful rumors about him. He was the kindest gentleman she'd ever met. Even her mother softened towards him. But as fond as she had become of Harry, she was still shocked when he asked her for her hand in marriage. She was hesitant for several reasons. They'd only been seeing each other for a few months. She knew nothing of his family and very little of his past. She was afraid it would seem ridiculous if such a high-profile man married a poor girl from Philadelphia. What would his family think? Harry insisted he wasn't concerned about his parents' opinions. Her hand in marriage was the only thing he cared about. When she continued to refuse, Harry grew frantic, almost hysterical. He insisted that he loved her. He asked her over and over again until suddenly, something clicked and Harry understood. He asked Evelyn if she was refusing him because of Stanford White. Evelyn couldn't bring herself to meet Harry's eyes. Of course it was about Stanford. Her life changed forever the day he had raped her. Evelyn hadn't told anyone, not even her mother, that Stanford White assaulted her. 
According to Courtney Ahrens, a research psychologist, rape survivors who speak out about their assault experiences are often punished for doing so when they are subjected to negative reactions. Simply recounting an assault can be a difficult and potentially re-traumatizing experience. When a survivor's story is met with doubt or blame, they are less likely to confide in others in the future. As Ahrens explains in an article from 2006, rape survivors often remain silent because they feel powerless. Evelyn suffered through her trauma alone after Stanford convinced her that it would be useless to tell anyone. She'd been silent for nearly two years, but Harry's question brought that day back to the forefront of her mind. It all came flooding back. The drug-induced sleep, the helplessness, the shame. Between sobs, Evelyn told Harry everything. As he listened to Evelyn's account, Harry grew tense. His blood boiled. By the end of her story, he was so furious he couldn't see straight. Stanford White was a scoundrel, a beast. Harry paced the room, chewing on his nails and yelling obscenities. Evelyn was taken aback by the severity of Harry's reaction. She knew Stanford had taken advantage of her, but a part of her believed him when Stanford said what happened was ordinary. Harry, on the other hand, knew for certain that Stanford had manipulated and traumatized a teenage girl. After his anger lowered to a simmer, Harry took Evelyn's hands. He assured her that he loved her and still wanted, more than anything, to make her his wife. Florence was unhappy on the trip. She wanted to go home immediately and left that summer while the couple traveled on. Evelyn arrived back in New York in late October 1903 while Harry stayed in Paris. She quickly discovered that Harry had told his friends about her rape and word spread to Florence and then to Stanford who denied the allegation. Before the end of the month, 18-year-old Evelyn ran into Stanford White on Fifth Avenue. When she mentioned Harry's proposal, Stanford cautioned her about the man's anger issues and substance abuse problems. But Evelyn hadn't seen any of that behavior. Harry was angry when he learned she had been assaulted by Stanford. And although his fury was frightening, it seemed reasonable, righteous even. Still, Evelyn didn't know what to do. Both Stanford and Harry were much older than her. Neither was ideal but she believed that she needed to pick a side if she wanted to secure a position of affluence and status. She still felt the weight of her family's dependence on her. She needed to provide for them. When Harry returned to America in December, Evelyn hesitated to receive him. She worried he would be angry with her for rejecting his proposal and was starting to believe the negative stories about him. But eventually she relented by the beginning of 1904, they were often seen around town together. 32-year-old Harry took 19-year-old Evelyn back to Europe in March. News of their unchaperoned journey made gossip column headlines. While abroad, Harry once again proposed marriage, Evelyn having decided that he was the better of her two options, accepted. Trying to merge the Nesbitt and Thaw families, however, was another problem. 
Mary Thaw, Harry's mother, disliked Evelyn from the moment she learned Evelyn had once been a model and actress. All Evelyn's attempts to impress her future mother-in-law were useless. Some of Harry's siblings refused to attend the wedding at all. When the big day finally arrived on April 4th, 1905, the festivities were, to put it lightly, underwhelming. As they approached Pittsburgh's Third Presbyterian Church, Evelyn saw rain clouds creep across the sky. She frowned. A thunderstorm was never a good omen. She tried to stay positive, but she felt nothing but anxiety. Florence hurried her daughter into the back of the church, buttoned up Evelyn's long white dress, and fashioned her hair into an elegant updo. She looked beautiful, but all she could feel were the bobby pins stabbing her scalp. When Evelyn walked down the aisle, her dress caught beneath her feet. The corset was so tight that it made her stomach turn. She felt like a prop and could almost see her future sliding down the drain. She wanted to believe it was the corset making her feel sick and not the fact that she was about to become Harry Thaw's wife. Only five people were there to witness her embarrassment, including the pastor. During the short service, Evelyn's chest grew heavy. It was supposed to be the best day of her life, but it only felt tragic. At least she thought she had an impressive-sized diamond on her finger. Her brother was still in school, her mother was taken care of, and they would never have to take in laundry or rent out their rooms again. The thoughts lifted her spirits for a bit, until she took another look at her husband. After honeymooning in San Francisco, Harry and Evelyn moved into the Thaw family estate in Pittsburgh. Evelyn hated being so far from New York. She spent her time trying to learn piano and perfect her French so she would fit into upper-class social circles. It wasn't exactly everything she'd hoped for. After they were officially wed, Harry's kindness and generosity suddenly evaporated. Apparently, he became controlling, obsessed with where Evelyn went and who she saw. He wanted revenge against Stanford for his rape of Evelyn and hired detectives to follow his rival. Harry was obsessed with Evelyn's chastity or lack thereof. At first, he seemed to be angry that Stanford assaulted and traumatized Evelyn. It became clear, however, that Harry was more concerned about Evelyn's supposed purity than the trauma she'd gone through. It wasn't uncommon for him to fly into fits of rage, just like he had in Paris, in which he muttered and cursed Stanford's name. Stanford, he reportedly told Evelyn, had ruined her. That wasn't the only tension Evelyn dealt with. Old photos she had posed for when she first moved to New York, many of which were somewhat suggestive, were published in calendars and displayed at art galleries. Mary Thaw was horrified. Evelyn always knew something like this was bound to happen. It was the risk she had to take to provide for her family. She didn't regret her modeling career and she was more than willing to defend herself against Mary's insults. But Harry couldn't stand his mother and wife fighting. In an attempt to escape the strains of Pittsburgh, he suggested yet another trip to Europe. That was where Evelyn always seemed the happiest. Harry made plans to leave from New York Harbor at the end of June. 
They'd spend a few days in the city before heading abroad. Harry even got tickets for a new show at Madison Square Garden's rooftop theater. The prospect cheered Evelyn up a bit. She longed to reignite the love she'd felt for Harry during their first trip to Paris. When they arrived in New York in late June 1906, 21-year-old Evelyn and 35-year-old Harry looked like a happy, fashionable couple from the outside. But the tension between them was palpable. They didn't hold hands. June 25th was the night of the play. As they took their seats in Madison Square Garden, Harry and Evelyn noticed Stanford White sitting a few rows away. Seeing Stanford threw Harry into a rage, he accused Evelyn of staring at the then 52-year-old architect and of still having feelings for him. The truth was, Evelyn had been gazing at Stanford because he looked awful. He aged considerably since she last saw him. A bald spot shone on the top of his head and he walked with a limp. Rumor was that Stanford White had lost nearly all of his money on bad investments. But Harry refused to hear any excuses. As the lights dimmed and the opening number began, Evelyn could feel the frustration radiating from her husband. The show was awful. The actors were mediocre and one dancer nearly tripped off the edge of the stage during the opening number. The musical Mamselle Champagne certainly wasn't distracting Harry from the thought of Stanford White. Evelyn was despondent. This trip was meant to be an escape from their stresses, but they hadn't even made it to Europe yet and they were already fighting. They couldn't get along in Pittsburgh. They couldn't get along in New York. What made Harry think Paris or London would suit them any better? Evelyn was so caught up in her own thoughts that she didn't notice when Harry got up and walked away from their seats. After a few moments, Evelyn realized her husband had disappeared. She looked around the theater, but instead of finding Harry, she saw Stanford White's silhouette near the front of the audience. Part of her wanted to go say hello during intermission. Part of her felt nauseous just thinking about speaking to him. But she never got the chance to decide whether to approach the architect. Instead, she shifted her gaze upwards and saw her husband pointing a pistol at Stanford White's head. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. For more information on this case amongst the many sources we used, we found The Girl on the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century by Simon Batts to be helpful to our research. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the story. We'll see how the love triangle between Evelyn Nesbitt, Harry Thaw, and Stanford White finally careened into violence. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime.
Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi again. Don't forget to check out the sizzling new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast.